Thank you, David. Uh, good afternoon, uh, everyone, and welcome to this plenary panel discussion on the topic of counterpublics. Our uh, distinguished panelists today will be entering into conversation with each other and uh, with you all about the individuals and groups who appear on the margins of public discourse and community. What are the spaces, groups, and activities of counterpublics today? What's their relation to the public to which they're defined in opposition? How are the internet and other forms of digital media serving as sites for the emergence or the making visible of these communities? And what's the future of these activities as zones for democratic participation or as sites where the organization of everyday experience is contested and so on? Later on in the session at about uh, half past the hour, we'll have the opportunity to hear from you all at one of the two mics up here. Uh, otherwise, you can direct questions and interventions uh, to me on Twitter at Noel Jackson, and I'll try to uh, keep up with the feed as best I can. Let me first introduce, then, our, uh, our uh, panelists in order of, uh, of presentation, and each will um, devote about five to eight minutes to uh, set the scene and, and uh, lay out some definitional terms and some topics uh, to wrestle with in the, in the hour to come. First up, uh, my far left is Cristobal Garcia. Cristobal is Assistant Professor of Innovation, Design Thinking, and Entrepreneurship at the Universidad Católica of Chile School of Business. His research areas are interdisciplinary electronic networks in higher ed, workplaces for innovation, and education curricula for creativity, innovation, and entrepreneurship. Second, a man who needs no introduction, in fact has already been introduced to you, uh, reintroduced to you, is Henry Jenkins, Provost Professor of Communication Journalism and Cinematic Arts at the University of Southern California. Previously, of course, he was the Peter de Flores Professor of the Humanities and co-director of the MIT Comparative Media Studies program with William Uricchio. He's the author of several books, as you know, including Convergence Culture, Where Old and New Media Collide, Textual Practice, and, uh, uh, sorry, Textual Poachers, Television Fans, and Participatory Culture. Third, we have Maria Sanfilippo. Maria is lecturer in American Studies at Harvard. Her research and teaching focuses on intersections among contemporary screen media, cultural politics, and representations of alternative sexualities. Her first book, The B Word, Bisexuality in Contemporary Film and Television, is forthcoming from Indiana University Press. It's out. Congratulations. <laughs> I'm last to get the news, apparently. And uh, finally, we have, uh, to my immediate left, Eric Gordon. Eric is Associate Professor of Visual Media Arts at Emerson College in Boston. Eric's research focuses on location-based media, technology, and community, and serious games. He's the director of the Engagement Game Lab and the co-author with Adriana de Souza Silva of Net Locality, why Location Matters in a Networked World, published by Blackwell in 2011, and the author of The Urban Spectator, American Concept Cities from Kodak to Google. So let's welcome the panelists, and thanks again. So first up is Cristobal. Okay. 
Thank you, David, for the invitation, and thank you, Noel, for the introduction. Uh, it's great to be back at MIT. I studied with Henry uh, kind of uh, one decade ago. Uh, so my talk, my briefly uh, introductory remarks are about uh, counterpublics from the stand standpoint of uh, political networks and civic movements that are happening all around the world, especially in Chile, where I come from. Uh, we're seeing this complex world uh, accelerated by the technology change over the last 20 years and certainly has changed the way we live, the way we, uh, the way we work, participate, and also the way that we produce, distribute, and resist power. Uh, and we also have seen in the last uh, decades an, an emergence of decentralized, open, liquid, new organizational, civic, political, and societal forms. So a new uh, ways of coordinating collective action is happening uh, uh, all around uh, the world. And certainly now we have some tools to analyze this uh, movement. We have been, my research team have been working for uh, three years now in a uh, in a diachronic and a long-term analysis of the social, uh, so the, of the discontent movements in the world, especially the counterpublics around political contestation and political engagement, that, as you know, has been uh, triggered by the uh, recent events on the world, but also augmented by social media platforms and tools. So this has been our focus um, uh, from the Arab Spring to the Tunisia to Occupy Wall Street to Occupy London to the Chilean winter, which is one of the case studies that we have been looking at from, and this has been happening for three years now, massive movement, massive political counterpublics uh, that have been moving on. Uh, I was briefly before uh, being here, I was presenting some of the work uh, there, and now we have many new tools to visualize, to uh, extract all these digital traces that we and our these counterpublics are putting there, and they are lefting, uh, uh, putting on the web, putting uh, on all the spaces. Uh, we have all these new tools that definitely we can track, analyze, get metrics, and uh, get uh, new information. So I think that from my standpoint, this question of, on counterpublic has to do with the question of power and its distribution in society. Um, what is power? I think is the evenly or the distribution of neural networks, you know, in our brains, social networks between ourselves and communication networks. You know, the people that got, got more communication networks got more power, and the same with the other type of networks. So we're talking about the degree of network participation in these uh, spaces. So they have been, this type of networks, the neural, societal, and communication networks have existed for a long time since the creation of humanity, so to speak, but the current acceleration is certainly new in both developed and emerging economies where I come from and I have been uh, looking at this. So it's definitely a radical differentiation and contestation of the so-called or traditional Habermasian, Habermasian uh, public sphere. Uh, 
uh, we are looking in these counterpublics, even in the political oriented one, performance, play, uh, different ways of presenting the self, and resistance, of course. Um, however, belo belonging, the sense of membership, is still key, I would argue, for these emerging counterpublics. We, I think we need to understand, because of the transversality, because of the horizontality of these networks and this global phenomena of these counterpublics, even though we're, we can look in different counterpublics in Tunisia, in the US, in Brazil, in Chile, we need and we need to understand these counterpublics vis-a-vis the networked social movements that have emerged in the last uh, decade. We're talking about a new type of social movement, uh, independent, uh, independent of their scale, uh, as I said, from all around the world, the origin of these counterpublics, especially the political ones, has to do with a crisis of the public sphere, with the crisis of the economic order, with the crisis of legitimacy and trust. So these social movements, and I would argue counterpublics, are started by a desire of autonomy facilitated and triggered by the digital networks that we live in. So, speaking about spreadable media, I would argue that we're looking, we're in the verge of looking these spreadable movements around the world. It's not only about spreadable media, but spreadable movements uh, that they are connected among themselves. They are networked in multiple levels, a multimodal, both online and offline, they are rooted in urban space, so this counterpublic has a place in the physical space, and they are also rooted there, so we don't need to uh, forget that counterpublics are not placeless. Uh, distributed and decentralized uh, structure trying to avoid excess excessive bureaucracy, difficult to repress, ubiquitous, agile, uh, disruptive, innovative, creative, uh, anyone can participate and join, right? Uh, these uh, are local, these network movements are local and global at the same time. So the locality and the global, uh, the local net counterpublics are here to stay, precisely because of the technology and infrastructure we live in. Uh, they learn from each other, they connect, and they use share symbolic connections among uh, themselves. Uh, they are self-generative movements, autopoietic uh, um, movements, uh, triggered by the frustration, indignation, and sense of inequality and injustice. Remember, I'm talking about mainly by, uh, about the political ones. Mm -hmm. And they are quite reflective. They, they also reflective, so in a certain way, the deliberative uh, characteristic of the Haramishian, uh, Habermas public sphere is also, to a certain extent, brought back to this new kind of reflective um, characteristic and condition of these movements. What we have, certainly a trade-off, and in some of our research we're looking at a trade-off between counter-publics and official politics, what happened when these counter-publics become publics and become official uh, uh, 
that's a trade-off that we certainly l need to understand when they become official and mainstream. Um, as I said, these multimodal networks in the internet, in the web, and the, in the urban space creates a new sense of solidarity, collective intelligence, and uh, digital gaming shaft, so to speak. Uh, Manuel Castell speaks about a new sense of togetherness. Um, they challenge political establishments, and they are doing so in all these countries where they are happening, especially the political, uh, the progressive political parties, the left and the new left, are being quite challenged by these new counter-publics that are appearing. In, in, for instance, in Chile, some of them are creating new political parties and challenging the existing ones. And they are certainly uh, augmenting, uh, these counterpublics are augmented by the social media, uh, and they are slowly changing our mental models. That's something, an hypothesis that I want to put forward here, that of course some of the change, the long-term change has to wait for a long time, but they are slowly changing our mental models. How do we relate and think of things like same-sex same marriage, political views, abortion, uh, drugs, religion, and so forth. So these networked social movements, counter-public, are the levers of social change, but it will take some time, probably one, two generations to come to fully understand the weight and uh, the influence they have. So we're seeing through this, through this lens, uh, a slow movement of history. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. So I've been lucky enough to be part over the last four years of a research network the MacArthur Foundation has set up on youth and participatory politics in the United States. And it's a multidisciplinary research team and includes Ethan Zuckerman, who you, you so probably saw speak earlier today. Howard Gardner here at Harvard is part of this. Political scientists like Daniel Allen and Kathy Cohen, uh, youth radio person Elizabeth Soap, Joe Kahn, who is an educational researcher ourselves. It mixes quantitative research. They're doing large-scale national surveys to try to count the kinds of political behavior contemporary young people are involved with, as well as more ethnographic work. And my team at USC is really doing We've done now more than 200 interviews of young activists, uh, participant observation, media audits, trying to look at a variety of innovative networks that have been involved in political movements over the last three or four years. So we've looked at everything from Harry Potter Alliance and nerd fighters who represent models of fan activism to um, Invisible Children, which we've been documenting over four years, well before CUNY 2012. Uh, we have case studies of libertarian youth, of dream activists, of Occupy, and most recently we've been working on American Muslim youth and their political life. And collectively, the network is working on a definition of what it's calling participatory politics, which are forms, politics that often stretch beyond our institutional understanding of what constitutes the political that involve various kinds of cultural activities, that involve the production and sharing of media. The, the, at the high end, it might be making blogs, making videos, re making memes. On the low end, it might involve circulation of one sort or another. But we're trying to document that behavior. The quantitative side sort of has come up with some interesting data points 
more than half, the, the, the first survey they did was right after the midterm elections. They're about to go in the field for a second survey that should reflect the last presidential election. So as we might expect in a um, midterm election, youth participation was low as it is for adults. But we found a significant difference between traditional institutional politics, such as voting and petitioning, and these new kinds of participatory politics. So the, the survey data found pretty significant gaps racially between the highest group, black youth, 52% did some, voted in, the, in that election. On the lowest end, your Latino votes, 27% voted in, the la- in, that, in that particular election. So a 25% gap across the races in terms of institutional political behavior. When we look at cultural participatory politics, we find that 43% of white kids, 41% of black kids, 38% of Latinos, and 36% of Asian Americans did at least one form of participatory political act over a 12-month period of time. So the gap racially closes, and it's kind of significant to think about what it might mean to see a form, forms of participatory politics become more dominant in the ways in which we think about what pol- politics means in the United States. And so part of what's going on here is a struggle over what counts as political and a struggle that often boils down to a tension between, you know, what we're seeing. And that struggle first partially being shaped on terms of social networks, cultural networks, so forth. So on one end of our side, the political scientists often are interested in individual behavior, and those numbers are counting individuals and what they've done politically. On our end, we're interested in publics, networks, and so forth, and the ways in which publics empower, enable, recruit, support political participation. Many of the sort of themes Cristobal is talking about here today, and I hope to talk a little bit about that side of things as we go forward. But what I wanted to raise today is the sort of gap between empowering voice and enabling influence, which is a central concern, and the notion of not empowered publics, but precarious publics. And to talk about that, I want to start with Marielle Gray's work out in, country, out in the country, which really introduces this term of boundary publics, that she's describing gay youth living in Kentucky who are struggling to form their identities in a space that is not only often hostile, but for which invisibility is not an option. What she says about gay youth in small town is everyone already knows you're gay. There's not a moment of coming out. There's a moment of, there's a moment of developing strategies for surviving forms of exposure that you're already involved in. But there's also not a secure space, not a place where counter-publics meet on a regular basis. So Mary Gray's account describes... For example, gay youth meeting in the middle of the night in Walmart and dressing in drag as a way of communicating with each other and expressing their cultural identity and their ability to do it depending on who's working the cash registers, who's in the shop from the local community, very precariousness. Or she talks about meetings in church basements, you know, uh, Christian bookstores, fast food restaurants, but also online spaces which are also over-policed, over-visible, at risk. It's left me, as I read Mary Gray's work, I'm struck by how many of the places that are classically described as publics are spaces designed for functions other than politics. So if we think about Habermas's coffee shops, if we think about Putnam's bowling alleys, if we think about black barber shops, as we think about women and gay book club, bookstores, or ethnic restaurants for various immigrant rights movements, these are spaces that are possessed 
often by sympathetic host, but which are the politics edges in around it's what's happening. It's a conversation on the back bench in the bowling alley while people are waiting to bowl. And I'm very interested in restoring bowling to Putnam's analogy, the bowling alley. And what does it mean to have a place designed for play that nevertheless functions as a space of politics? And this notion of precariousness then leads me to think about two snapshots of the research we've been done. One's the young dreamers, the young undocumented youth who've been very effective at using new media platforms in order to gain visibility, in order to push for the DREAM Act and more citizen rights and more education rights for undocumented youth, who've done so in part by just simply turning the camera on themselves and telling their own stories and posting it on YouTube, often with a metaphor of coming out. So the video is something like, my name is Mohammed and I'm undocumented. And you proceed to tell your story. It's not technically sophisticated work. The lighting's sometimes off. But the immediacy of those stories is really, really powerful. And part of what goes on there is many people in America don't know they know anyone who's undocumented. Many is undocumented youth didn't even know that the person sitting next to them at school was undocumented because they've been forced into this closet and this moment of visibility is a moment of potential empowerment, but also of risk, right? So some of them have been deported based on the videos they produce. So Malcolm Gladwell talks about digital activism not involving the same degree of risk as traditional activism. But when we turn to the dreamers, we see enormous risk involved in these moments of video production in which you tell your story directly to the camera. We also see, we discover that many of these youth don't have access to their own technology. Right? So we find bloggers who don't have access to computing at home, who go to school and public libraries. We see video, videographers who are borrowing cameras from local labor unions or community centers in order to capture their story. So in a double sense, they're precarious. They don't, have, they don't control their space, they don't control what happens to their image, and they don't have control of their bodies. And making these videos put them at risk, but also connects them to the counter public. Something similar is going on when we look at the American Muslim youth, right? And what they say is they don't even have the right not to be political. That for them, much of the activities we've been documenting there is simply the desire to tell your own story, to represent the individuality and diversity of Muslim culture in the United States by creating YouTube videos, by sharing them through video platforms. But what we heard over and over again is unfortunately this becomes political the minute we put it online. That to be Muslim in the United States is to be political, to have meanings projected onto you. So normal use of social media for this population is political. Part of what makes it political is the culture of surveillance. That is, and they mean partially the post-9-11 surveillance by governments, by right-wing groups, and so forth. But they also mean simply sorting out what it means to be Muslim in the United States from their aunts, their amans, other people who are in their larger community who are looking at them and policing their behavior, their expression, as they struggle to figure out who they are. I wanted to talk about this dimension because I'm in Boston. And part of what we saw, what Sangeeta Shrestova, the postdoc who's been working with me on the American Muslim case study, who's a former CMS student, part of what she said is in the last two weeks, all of these communities of young people whose voices were struggling to be heard went dead silence. Right? The response to Boston bombing, the response to the increased anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant sentiment in the United States has been to utterly silence these young women and young men who had been trying to find a counter-public. And so that's a pretty dramatic sense of the precariousness of these digital publics 
that we may celebrate as empowering, and I really, in my deep heart, believe them. I haven't stopped being an optimist for anyone in the audience who might be worried about that. But I think we also have to acknowledge the risk and the silencing that takes place of a number of these groups that are struggling to be heard in America and struggling to form not even a counter-public, but a boundary public, a precarious public, in these often unhospitable spaces that the only space available to them. Henry Jenkins is a hard act to follow, but I'll try my best. Um, so I was a little startled when I was asked to be on this panel, and I was trying to figure out the rationale for it. And I think it must have had something to do with the fact that counterpublics was actually a word in the title of the paper that I gave this morning on AfterEllen.com, which I'll say a bit about in just a moment. Um, I was also thinking that maybe, and I'm sorry to correct you twice, but I'm actually in American Studies at Wellesley College, Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at Harvard. So Women's College, Women's Studies Department. I started thinking maybe it's because I do new or old media, rather. Um, I study what I think a lot of you would probably think of as old media, film and television primarily. I'm being a little disingenuous on a couple of counts here because, in fact, my next project is invested in looking at the uh, convergence of old and new media. And largely what I'm looking at is the way in which, despite the kind of popular narrative, uh, that the so-called digital revolution is going to, or is already leading to, the end of television, the end of cinema. In fact, I see uh, digital technologies and processes having a lot to do with the preservation, the appreciation, and even the production of maybe not celluloid filmmaking, but of a filmic aesthetic. I won't go into that much um, uh, in depth today, but I uh, uh, bring it up as a... Um, a prelude to uh, this disclaimer that I think I'm as interested as most of you are uh, in asking those questions or in hearing from my co-panelists uh, about those uh, questions posed of what's going on with counterpublics in the digital age. But I think I can speak to uh, counterpublics and, and specifically queer counterpublics in the old media age, the pre-digital age. Um, so queer counterpublics is something that's been informing my work for a long time, um, notably the work of Michael Warner. And so I thought I would mention three instances of queer counterpublics in my own work and then raise three questions that we can um, uh, approach going forward. Um, the first has to do with the book that uh, Noel just uh, mentioned is now out, uh, the B word on bisexuality in contemporary film and television. So bisexuality studies is, I would argue, a queer counterpublic. Um, and it's uh, oppositional to both heteronormativity but also to homonormativity. Um, and in that way, I argue that bisexual studies has its own history, its own uh, idiomatic um, uh, realm. And uh, furthermore, it does need to kind of be defending itself and uh, in, is often articulating itself in opposition to, um, in a kind of subaltern position within both uh, straight culture, but also queer culture and queer theory and queer studies within the academy. I was thinking back to when both Cristobal and uh, Henry were talking about the rootedness of counterpublics and the spaces uh, for queer youth in rural spaces. I don't think there really is a space or there's next to no spaces, virtual or physical, where the presumption is of bisexual identity. And that's one, I think, very clear reason why bisexual studies seems to be, to me, uh, in need of formulating as a queer counterpublic. Um, I think that there's also that kind of shared sense of alternative 
parity around the experience of being bisexual or of studying bisexuality in representation or what have you that also uh, serves to um, uh, attest to that need for that queer counterpublic formulation. Um, another way in which I'm now in my new project looking at queer counterpublics as a lens through which to view what's going on in 21st century filmmaking, which might seem like a kind of oxymoron in, in a sense, but um, in fact, as this is my own specific focus, I'm finding that the kind of accessibility and affordability, to put it in very optimistic and utopian terms, that digital filmmaking has allowed us and dis digital distribution as well. Um, has actually been quite useful in uh, furthering uh, queer and especially women uh, to make films and uh, increasing representations of alternative sexualities and relationships, which is uh, what I'm particularly interested in. Um, so this, begun, this, this nods at one of the two questions that I, or three questions that I have, which has to do with um, how we can reconcile uh, the potential of a queer counterpublic having uh, significant backing and even control by capital forces, capitalistic forces. So in this case, some of the films that I'm looking at, um, I won't name them, but I uh, basically, if you think of anything that was made in the 21st century, especially if it was directed by a queer woman and if it foregrounds in some narrative way questions of uh, non-normative relationships and sexualities, I'm probably working on it or I'd like to hear about it, so let me know. But um, the, the issue of this is that most of these films are able to be made in this new century for the very real reason of uh, media conglomeratization. That, for example, just one um, particular uh, distribution outlet that I'm uh, working with closely because it's uh, something that's been um, turning out lots of the films in, that I'm interested in, in talking about is IFC, the Independent Film Channel. You're, I'm sure, familiar with it. Uh, which is, in and of itself, the um, property of uh, the Rainbow Media Group, which is itself uh, owned and operated by Cablevision, a behemoth of uh, media conglomeratization, right? So I'm wrestling with the question of whether I can be dealing with uh, these 21st century films about non-normative sexualities if they are, in fact, made possible and enabled through uh, big capital, big money. And then third, uh, this goes for uh, AfterEllen.com as well, the same question of capital. This is what I presented on this morning. After Ellen, if you don't know about it, uh, was founded in 2002. It's the premier website still to this day, I would argue, uh, in which queer women are talking about uh, media visibility and media representations of queer women. Um, and here, too, in 2005, after it was uh, independently founded and run for a few years, it was bought out by Logo, which is a gay-targeted cable channel. But again, that parent company would be, of course, Viacom, another media conglomerate. So again, that question of how is capital uh, determinative of the ability for queer counterpublics even to come into existence or to cohere um, productively in the 21st century, but also is it a kind of preventative to us understanding them as queer counterpublics? The other two questions I had um, are more kind of meta, and they're about whether we are um, even sure of the definitions that we are using when we define or counterpublics or counterpublics more generally. Um, do we feel like counterpublic has to have um, rootedness, as Cristobal was suggesting, or do we feel like it has to be aware of its subaltern status, as Michael Werner suggests? Um, 
how is it different from things like subcultures or uh, in the Foucauldian sense of reverse discourse? So the kind of idea of what is a counterpublic? And then finally, do we even want to ask that question? So is it a litmus test to be defining what a counterpublic is, to be assigning counterpublic status to uh, anything and everything, or should we be using it in a kind of more uh, non-prescriptive manner? So I look forward to hearing everyone's thoughts. Thank you. Finally, Eric. Yes. Um, can I have that clicker over there? Thank you. Thanks. Great. Um, well, likewise, I, I feel um, um, it was an odd choice to, to have me on this panel as well, but maybe that's part of the evil genius uh, of putting this panel together. So uh, my work is... is um, I work a lot with governments uh, and, and large institutions. And I think what's interesting about that is, is that I, I'm really concerned with how, with how large institutions, like governments, um, enable some kind of uh, formation of, of counterpublics and how we can imagine that idea, how we can imagine the flexibility of publics, um, even when it comes to um, intersecting with, with mainstream institutions. So the, the first issue is that, that I want to bring up is, is just how is value made in civic engagement or, or in, in just public formation in general? And, you know, I start with, uh, with, with something Henry already brought up, which is that it's a, it's a common argument that, that civic action of one sort or another takes, takes work and it takes risk. Um, and without work or risk, then the, the value of those actions, those collective actions, are, are questionable. Um, and so collectivism comes to mind, and it lacks those things. It lacks the, it lacks the sense of, of any significant risk being taken, and often it's, it's, a, um, it's sort of marginalized for those reasons. Or it's something like, um, something like We the People, uh, the, the, uh, the White House uh, petition, um, where in this case you, you need 100,000 signatures uh, for any particular petition in order for it to get a response from the White House. And so that's a fairly high bar, one would, one would think. Um, but, but by the nature of how easy it is, essentially, to get those, um, to get those digital signatures, then that's, that's become the, the kind of official um, bar. So governments tend to resist this form of input, ultimately, even though there is tension and pressure, rather, uh, for governments to acknowledge it. And I think this is what's really interesting about this space. So on one hand, you have every single government from the, from, I'm talking about the United States, and I can broaden that out in a bit in a second, but, but governments in the United States from the federal level down to the local level are feeling pressure to acknowledge and to, um, to take in the uh, input and interactions that they're receiving from a public and a digital realm. And what's, what's challenging, and especially on the local level, which is where I've done a lot of work, what's challenging on the local level is that there is real desire to actually understand and hear from people on a local level, but there's actually a, a, a huge amount of anxiety around the capacity to do so. So, and that's, so, so I guess the question is, where is the disconnect? Where is the disconnect between the, 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 the clear examples of, of everything that, that's been talked about on this panel, of things that are happening, of, of, uh, of voices that are being heard in very powerful ways, and institutions that are sort of being pushed to the point where they have to um, acknowledge or not? So my big question is, is what where play factors into this and how it can be meaningful specifically in the way that publics interact with and change institutions. So, um, you know, everything what we've been talking about are uh, they're playful acts, and I'll define that in a second. 
Um, and, but I, what's really interesting is that it's seen as the opposite of work. Play is seen as the opposite of work, and things that are not hard are also seen as uh, playful and frivolous. But it, interestingly, I think, play is doing the work that work can no longer do. Um, it's accessible, it's shareable, it's more meaningful uh, to many people, um, and, and there's, a, there's a real need to acknowledge it on a fundamental level. So I, I thought I would go through just a quick definition of play and then um, uh, talk about the ways in which I feel like the, these uh, um, institutions are struggling with the, accommodating, uh, the accommodation of, of, this, of this definition. So play, self-chosen and self-directed. Players are always free to quit. We can complicate this definition. Um, it's an activity in which means are more valued than ends. Um, and you can be thinking in your mind, as, as I often do, this is exactly what it means to participate in civic life. Um, guided by mental rules, and play is non-literal, imaginative, marked off in some way from reality. So there's a lot of ways of thinking about this, of all the various acts of play. Um, art and making is an act of play that, that um, governments are, are taking very seriously in some respects, or rather finding ways to do so. The Laundromat Project, for instance, is a fascinating project that where it, it where Laundromats became, become centers of public art, um, and, and youth um, all, over, all over New York and elsewhere are, are coming to laundromats to basically make art that's civically oriented and local, um, local in, in impact. Um, drawing carts, we see these more and more, for instance. Um, Upham's Corner, for instance, in Boston, has just, uh, just launched this drawing cart, which is basically a, a conversation starter where people come and and create, and especially youth are drawn to this sort of thing, come and create, draw, make comments on, and then submit um, within this very sort of playful act of, of creation. And I put this in here to be, um, to be a, a little bit dramatic, but um, I thought I would, you know, the story, of course, is a major, uh, a major factor or a major uh, frame in which play happens. And so I put Harry Potter together with the Tea Party movement to just to, to, to ask that question, um, so when story, of course, is a, a very powerful mode of play, um, and uh, it's, a, it's a, a framing mechanism wherein, wherein people are participating in politics in incredibly meaningful ways and using the internet as a means of telling those stories and acting upon those stories, um, I wonder what the, what the values are in, in that. Or rather, I wonder if, if play, in this case, um, is value neutral. Um, and, or rather, if the frame what is what matters more than, than anything else. And I think it's a really interesting topic of conversation that I hope we can bring up later, which is just that is there any necessary connection between digital counterpublics and progressive politics? And then finally, this is where most of my work is, uh, is um, oriented, is in games. So games provide... Um, so I, I make games um, that where where and I work a lot with with local governments and 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 other governments and large institutions as a way of using games as a mechanism to frame the act of play that is um, that is parallel to and and actually stands in for the um, for for civic engagement or for civic acts or for even creation of counter and flexible publics. Um, Community Planet is a game that, that, that I've done in, in, in cities um, in the United States and Europe that sort of transposes the act of, of participating in local planning in this case, whether it's a school, uh, school planning or, or urban planning, um, into a game and then uses the, the outcomes of that, of that game to sort of force 
um, institutions to pay attention. And institutions, interestingly, are more willing to accept that context simply because they have a mechanism through which to accept the, the input. Um, Evoke is, of course, a, a popular example of a game that, that um, where youth all over the world um, created campaigns and essentially were, were empowered to act on those campaigns within the context um, in the context of a mission-based game. And then something like Acts of Kindness, which is a um, which is a, a basically a, a, a gamified social platform that that takes everyday acts of kindness and allows people to publish p- publicize those to connect with other people um, to to form small groups of people around simple acts of of kindness. So it's taking that idea of of um, engagement or civic action and taking it away from grand scale um, social change and even to the level of micro-group formation um, in a way that can be remarkably flexible and powerful. So I just want to end with just kind of reframing that definition of play that I, just, uh, that I provided a few slides ago um, and say that, that when, um, when play intersects with everyday acts of civic engagement and specifically the way in which institutions uh, encounter those everyday acts, we can see it this way. Um, play is self-chosen and self-directed. Participants are, in many cases, free to quit. Activity in which, um, play is an activity in which process is meaningful and connected to ends. And this is something that I'm really interested in, is that, that in order to, to get from play that seems frivolous and disconnected, or networks that seem frivolous and disconnected and too easily assembled and disassembled, to the point where we have meaningful publics that can, that can cre- be created and take action, um, there is a sense of, of uh, the importance of framing in this um, framing play and using games as a way of framing play. So activity play is an activity in which process is, meaning, process is meaningful, so the act of play is meaningful, but it's also connected to ends. And that can happen through the design of a, of a game or through, the, through the, um, the playing of a game. Play is guided by mental rules that correspond to social rules. And this is something that's really interesting as well, that, that what, what impact can you have by, um, or can, can groups have by essentially creating a set of rules that parallel social rules and that can, um, can intersect and challenge those social rules, but all within the context of the created rule set. And then finally, play is non-literal, imaginative, marked off in some way from reality with clear feedback to goals and outcomes. And um, so this is how I'd like to see um, us thinking about play, both in games, in art making, um, and in narrative and story, uh, and ways in which we can sort of direct these acts of play in ways that um, can meaningfully create, assemble, and disassemble uh, counterpublics. Thank you. All right, thank you. Thank you for very much. So Henry poses the question, what counts as political, right? And, and I also heard that question arising in what Maria described as the meta question of what counts as a counterpublic, and does it even make sense to think in terms of, of the counterpublic? To what extent is it, is it profitable or useful to us, uh, for us to do so? And so I guess the first question that I'd want to put to the panel is, to what degree do you see a counterpublic as a different beast than, say, a specialized public, what Miriam Hansen calls a partial public, a niche uh, community, a, um, a fan culture, let's say, something like that? Do, do these constitute counterpublics? Yes, 
know, maybe. I mean, I'm thinking of um, Michael Warner offers the example of field and stream, right? Do the readers of field and stream constitute a counter public? It's an, interesting, it's an interesting question. We had a panel of young activists here at MIT in the Futures of Entertainment conference in November that included some representatives in the groups that my team has been studying, including the Harry Potter Alliance and Students for Liberty, which is a libertarian group, and so forth. The question got asked, are you an activist? And almost instantly, all of the young activists on the panel took big steps back and disavowed the category of activism, while the Twitter group in front of them, was, which was a different generation, was angrily saying, how, how dare you claim not to be an activist? This is an important legacy. We then moved to Los Angeles for the Transmedia Hollywood Conference, did a different mix of the young activists from our case study that included the Dreamers and the American Muslim youth. And their response was, how could we not be activists? That is, by, by definition, our very identity is politicized, that we are forced to think of ourselves in political terms every moment of the day, and only those who are enormously privileged have the option of opting out of being and calling themselves an activist. And I would posit that that's a, not a bad way of thinking about the line between a partial public, a niche public, a subcultural public, which I would argue the Young Libertarians and the Harry Potter Alliance probably to some degree constitute and a counter-public, which is seeking to solidify public opinion because they're not going to be heard in the dominant discourse of the society and that they're fighting to be legible. They have to solidify their own ranks in order to speak out. And that's the kind of classic notion of, you know, Nancy Fraser's classic notion of a counter-public is that they have to solidify public opinion before they enter into certain kinds of public conversations. Yeah. But I also hear from your response and, and from Maria's too, and I, I want to turn the question to Maria in a second, this idea that the counterpublic is defined in part because the coming into visibility, the coming into publicness of that, of that population is fraught, is precarious, to invoke your term, Henry, it involves the, the, the subjects of, of that public in, in all sorts of risks or, or the potential of risk, so that uh, the, the counterpublic might be defined by by its consciousness as a marginal or, or a marginalized community or, or as minor with respect to a larger community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that, that it uh, has been uh, theorized as being a performative in a sense, right? It comes into being as it is enabling the discourse that it itself is uh, invested in um, uh, disseminating. And so I hesitate to put those kinds of prescriptive terms on it, this is or this isn't a counterpublic, but I do think that the importance of the term and the concept is that it allows us for a kind of uh, way of questioning our own, in any given potential counterpublic's um, view of what the aims and the value of that discourse is. So what is it uh, in the sense of uh, its self-awareness? Is it a subaltern uh, sense of self-awareness that this group has? Is it strictly oppositional or transformative, or is it merely kind of a replicating um, uh, way in which it's questioning norms or um, disseminating discourse? So I think it can serve as a kind of, uh, counterpublics can serve as a kind of um, way of constantly questioning the the very boundaries and uh, objectives of any kind of given uh, 
alternative or non-normative uh, discourse. So I want to ask a, another question, this, this time for maybe uh, Cristobal and Eric in particular, in as much as your, your two presentations, one focusing on the forms of political resistance for the most part, and the other focusing on the forms of, of play, play as as a vehicle to uh, political action. What the relationship, thinking within the category of the counterpublic, is between play and resistance? Uh, sure, I could take that. I, I'll start. Um, it's, it seems to me that that what what play allows for is a is a is a movement uh, within. Um, Within within identity and within within categories, and so what what I found in, in some of the um, some of the the ethnographic work that we've done with players of, of the the games that that we make is specifically that when people act within the game, understanding the who the audience is within that networked environment is is absolutely important, and how that audience gets to shift because of the context of the game. And what I mean by that is that sometimes, for instance, um, youth understand themselves within a game like this as as uh, talking to um, power, talking to government, talking to people who can make changes. But most of the time, they see themselves as as talking to um, the other youth, talking to them themselves. And, and who they're performing for is not necessarily the, um, the entity or the institution that they're trying to change or to resist. They're actually performing for themselves in some really interesting way. And what I think, why I think play is so powerful in this context is that they get to go back and forth. And that's why I think it's, it's present in all sorts of contexts, not just within games, but that being able to move from um, talking to us as a small group to talking to, um, the, talking to the government in a single sentence or, or act is remarkable. And, um, and, I, and I see that that where, is where the, the power of play interfaces with the, the power of resistance. Yeah, definitely. Um, we've seen it, uh, a lot of this political resistance using actually different forms of play and performance to make visible what their identity or emerging identity is. And this performance, different various of performance, thea- performance theater uh, have been happening on the urban space. So that's what I was saying that uh, uh, this certainly official counterpublics, because probably not niche, but official counterpublics that appear in the public opinion, but they weren't three years ago, they use in different ways, different tactics of performance, of uh, um, uh, symbolic representation to really uh, constitute a new identity. So I would argue that the play and performance for specifically the the students' uh, movement and also in other parts of the world have been a key uh, issue to uh, foster this identity and the group and constitute the counterpublic using, as I said, artifacts in the physical space. So maybe I was also struck by the idea that there's a lot of other counterpublics that don't make it to the public space. They don't use the urban space, and for that reason, they remain below the surface. And of course, we need to you know, take that into consideration because there's democratic and you know, well-being issues on that area. So between the free-form, self-organizing um, quality of play and the 
oppositional ends-orientedness of resistance. Obviously, not every not every lolcat producer is, or is, is going to eventually is going to end up on the barricades, or not every lolcat is going to eventuate in political action. But I see that there's there, there's a there's a continuum that, that's uh, that, that's being hypothesized across the uh, presentations between these um, forms of counterpublic. Where where do forms of um, what I guess I could think of as minimal resistance fit in? Um, what we might think of as the Bartleby counterpublic, right? <laughs> forms, forms of abstention, inaction, passivity rather than activity, um, digital, digital opt-outs, for instance. It, you know, to, to what extent do, do, do these con- constitute counterpublics, and to what extent um, w- would you want to include them in the, in the, in the larger sphere of counterpublic identity that you're describing? Yeah, Henry. Yeah, I, I will take, well, let me take a step back and talk about play for a minute, and I'll answer, then I'll answer the core of your question. We start, uh, the first case study we did, the Harry Potter Alliance, was one which you used, Eric used as an example of play. I think it's very clear, and we expected to see play there. So we kept going further and further away from fandom, trying to figure out you know, where the line between culture and political identification took place. And even when we look at American Muslim youth who have, uh, for example, took the phrase Muslim rage and talk about Muslim rage as having a great hair day and no one can see it underneath the hijab, uh, this sort of use of humor as a means of political speech, even under the most desperate of circumstances, or the ways that we've seen the dream activists mobilize around the metaphor of the superhero. So that uh, there, there was a debate in DC comics about Superman renouncing his American citizenship. Rick Perry went after DC comics for being un-American. And the, and the, um, the undocumented youth said, when did Superman ever become an American citizen? <laughs> if ever there was an illegal alien in the United States, it's Kal-El of the planet Krypton who creeped across the border in the middle of the night, got adapted by an Anglo family and has been living in hiding ever since, yet managed to continually contribute to truth, justice, and the American way of life. Uh, that, that the claiming of that metaphor is, is a kind of play seems to be characteristic of a whole generational style of politics right now that I think regardless of the stakes or the seriousness or the precariousness of the position, play and fiction making and content worlds seem to be part of how politics is being expressed across all of the case studies we've been looking at. Now, in terms of the minimalist thing, the most interesting example of this would be the Young Libertarians that uh, was Liana Thompson, who's uh, one of our postdocs has been looking at. These are youth that are incredibly engaged politically, pay close attention to the news, have heated debates about it, and have made a conscious decision not to vote. That they don't believe voting is a mechanism that works for them to bring about political change. So the refusal to vote is maybe their most powerful and distinctive political statement. And it's one that's hard for us who study civic engagement to even think about. Because it's not apathy. It's not ignorance. It's a tactical choice. It's a generational difference from older, gener- older libertarians for whom forming a libertarian as a third party or, or trying to shape Republican politics toward a libertarian direction has been the dominant <coughs> drive. But for these youth, not voting is their political statement. And they're seeking education. They're seeking to use 
cultural production. They're seeking access to, go, to think tanks and so forth, but they're not seeking to become voters. And I think that's a really interesting example of counter-public behavior. That, that kind of active inaction or inactive action, as, as you prefer, is, is also, and for obvious reasons, difficult to quantify. And both Cristobal and, and Henry were describing kind of quantitative tools that have been developed to assess the effectiveness or the the successfulness of of the counter public and and so i guess i'm i'm wondering just to follow up on on that question wh- what one does with um counter public populations that don't announce themselves either as um here we are letting our freak flag fly in a state of op- open-minded uh, exploratory play, or, or here we are pursuing a specific political uh, emancipatory end in, in the form of resistance. I actually have a pretty, I think, colorful example of that, which is, um, uh, and from my own queer counterpublic's backyard, um, you know, I'm sure you're all familiar with the Pride movement, the Pride Parade of LGBT liberation that happens globally and annually, and increasingly in a very highly commodified way. I think it's like Bud Light now that sponsors uh, pride rallies and pride uh, marches here in the U.S. Um, And in its wake, um, there has been uh, pushback or abstention maybe from uh, opting out, I think is a good way of putting it, from uh, some more non-normative or queer members of the community that are kind of issuing that homonormativity uh, of marriage equality, of pride, of all of these very kinds of um, assimilatory and also of uh, very positivist um, style uh, rhetoric uh, by mounting shame parades, right? So the shame parade, which eschews commodification, which eschews any kind of uh, sponsorship, um, and which very much with playful affect, I think, um, is embracing things like negativity and shame um, and exclusion uh, as a way of countering what they see as the counterpublic of pride having gotten pushed too far down that continuum. So it seems as if the idea of a counterpublic isn't in and of itself kind of a relative term whereby it's always reacting to something else. And that continuum, which I like, uh, that formulation, is constantly going to be kind of uh, pulled or stretched um, in, in both directions. Yeah, just to comment on the, the, the tools that we yes. have right now, because you raised uh, that question. I mean, uh, the, the variety of tools that we have from social network analysis through ethnography to really uh, uh, visualize and understand and look and find these minimal, minimal, viable counterpublics, as I would call it, I think is a huge opportunity for both research and activists. I mean, uh, 10 years ago, we didn't have all these tools. Many of those are open source, and you can use that for collective action and also for uh, definitely uh, understanding, tracking, uh, if, uh, if you want, and following over time. So uh, I think it's a wonderful opportunity for this finding this minimal, minimal viable counterpublics uh, paraphrasing a word from the entrepreneurship uh, methods uh, that you can find those. To pick up on a theme that was uh, raised in Henry's presentation, do you find that with um, increasing efforts to track, to quantify, to visualize the forms of political counter-public activity, that there's any corresponding risk of visibility for the members of those counter-publics or those resistance groups? 
of course, there was a panel uh, on that one, so uh, there's a huge risk, but there's no doubt that we live in an even or increasingly transparent uh, world, so there's definitely a risk, uh, but uh, I think it's the, game, the rules of the games that we have right now. If you are participating you know, in this space, uh, you're going to be, at some point, public. And so we are, and uh, so the rules of the game dictate that I think this is the time of the hour that we should uh, turn to the public, our public, and uh, solicit questions. So uh, please uh, uh, stand up uh, before one or other uh, microphone and uh, let us have them. So, this is on. Um, thanks very much for the panel. The subject's very near and dear to my heart. Appreciate all the comments and everything. Uh, question was, uh, how does hegemony or institutional establishments respond to the current counterpublics you described, uh, whether these exemplify network power or participatory politics, uh, and if they see them as potential voters or possible activists? And two possible perspectives I was thinking of is the way Critical Art Ensemble talks about uh, the fortress ideology where they bunker down in response to the nomad power, or Alexander Galloway's claim that in the future, whoever masters network power will have control. Uh, I, could take a, uh, I, I could take a stab at that. Um, I'll start with, um, with, with maybe a, an anecdote of, of how, how institutions respond to perceived forms of power, even prior to the um, possibility of, of, of networks, or rather, even prior to digital networks. Um, I, I've worked a lot with, uh, as I said, local, local governments. And what I, what I find really interesting about, about that context is that um, I've been in a lot of meetings with, with government officials who, who know the activists by name, um, who will always show up at a meeting, and will... Um, and will uh, try to address their complaint prior to um, prior to when they get in front of that person. So they're already sort of countering um, whoever this person is going to be that they that they know by name. And typically, there's only a few. Um, and and what's what's interesting is that now those same groups of people now are confronted not with a single activist, but with the possibility of being able to say track discontent on Twitter, for instance, which is something that that uh, that governments are, are are keen on right now. Um, and and the question is, what are they going to do with that discontent? Is it simply to understand the discontent so that they can um, that they can ignore it? more efficiently? Um, is it about understanding the discontent so that they can actually respond to it meaningfully? Um, it, it, it's unclear, but I, as I said before in my presentation, there's an anxiety around receiving that discontent. So what I'm seeing from institutions right now is that, um, that there is, that there is a, a, a kind of wall that's being put up, which is that, no, we won't admit that we look at this um, because we don't have a meaningful way to respond. And, and that's an interesting dynamic. So it's the, those, those counterpublics exist within a, within a, a digital context, but, but institutions can effectively just say that they don't have the capacity to deal with it, and in some way they can be let off the hook, um, not necessarily by the public, but by the, by within the institutions and the networks of institutions that they operate in. 
Yeah, I think it works similarly in the, uh, the realm in which I work uh, in terms of uh, creative content production. I mean, I think that you see, like, to use a completely vapid example, um, the Twitter campaign to save the HBO show Enlightened, of which I was a, an active participant. We failed. It, it got canceled. However, you know, it's, I think, uh, safe to say that HBO was monitoring um, that, uh, that discord and um, that uh, it was, in the same ways, potentially meaningful to them, potentially capable of changing their behavior, and also potentially monetizable. And I think that's really what it comes down to in terms of the kind of agencies with which or institutions with which you know, I'm working. If there's a way to profit from the discord, and you're increasing seeing that in terms of fan cultures being productive in that sense in a way that you know they're certainly not uh, uh, financially compensated for um, I think it can actually lead to as long as it seems manageable it can lead to uh, uh, an advantageous situation for the institutions in power so a couple of examples from our, our research on the one end the young libertarians group that's struggling to be participatory, but almost everyone we've interviewed has been sought out by right-wing financiers, the Koch brothers and others, who every time a new leader emerges, they try to suck them into the organization. And there's been an active struggle there to remain participatory, which is sort of one answer to your question. Is participatory inherently progressive? No, but in practice, it's very difficult to find fully participatory organizations on the right, and a lot of the research on conservative participation suggests they become hierarchical, they become institutionalized very, very fast. The other end, we could look at something like the, the Dreamers, who were really were struggling to be heard, and challenging Obama, who had deported more undocumented youth than the eight years of the Bush administration in his first three and a half years, took a variety of public stances, including civic disobedience coming into INS headquarters in the South and turning themselves in as undocumented and webcasting it out to the world and doing some other pretty amazing acts of civil disobedience. And when Obama flipped, then they were featured at the Democratic National Convention. They were singled out at the State of the Union, at the inaugural address. So suddenly they're being incorporated as props and they are struggling with ambivalences as well about how those interfaces actually work. Obviously, there's more hope of change on their policies if the administration is listening to them than when it doesn't, but they're not exactly sure they want to simply be a backdrop for the campaigns of the Democratic Party on, on some of these issues. Take another question up here. Hello, Valentin Dander from Innsbruck, Austria. Um, I was wondering if there was a way to kind of bridge this kind of counter-publics and uh, the, the one public sphere that Habermas was imagining and also bridging somehow old and new media. Um, I'm here at this conference as a, as a researcher in digital media, but I'm also working in a community radio station, a free non-commercial one in Innsbruck. And... Um, I was wondering if this kind of uh, institutionalized and central, or at least more centralized way of a counterpublic that is created there can um, somehow be um, aggregating other counterpublics, including them within itself. Um, as I'm experiencing, experiencing it, it's, um, there are feminist groups, queer groups, um, people with disabilities um, speaking there, young people, old people. So 
different ethnical groups. Um, it seems to be some kind of a conglomerate um, that, that can in enforce or um, in strength these single counterpublics in a way. And I was wondering um, how you would think about this uh, kind of half institution um, of, of community radio or TV stations within this field of uh, publics and counterpublics. How would you situate that? And how the situation in the USA is probably, I don't know about that. I'll just say a bit. I don't have a lot to say about that, but I think it's a fascinating question, and I think that it's an optimistic one, you and Habermas, uh, in, in uh, imagining that. <laughs> um, but you know, I would, I, uh, <laughs> right? I would invoke, but I would invoke Foucault. You know, thinking that uh, there's always going to be some sort of resistance where there is some sort of power, right? That there's a kind of built-in um, uh, force preventing any kind of greater consensus or um, interoperability uh, uh, um, uh, in that regard. So. Um, I don't think it's a matter of there being such a proliferation of counterpublics that there's sort of like a the center cannot hold phenomenon. I think it's more of the kind of relative continuum that I was uh, tracing before, where there's always a kind of resistant uh, model, where there's um, always something more counter to the counter. My point to um, uh, work in a Habermasian vein like Netan Kluge's Public Sphere and Experience too, which, which points to the existence of a public sphere not as kind of normatively unified ideal that Habermas imagines it to be, but, but as a, a social sphere riven with contradiction in, it, in its own right. Um, whether, whether such an understanding of the public sphere would turn all publics, in effect, into counter-publics and thus render uh, our conference topic uh, <laughs> null and void is, is another question. Well, but I think there is a possibility for new kinds of coalition formation. So if we look at the dreamer movement here, immigrant rights in the United States has historically been generationally specific and nationally ethnically specific. What we've seen is it tends to be driven by Spanish language talk radio, for example, in Los Angeles. What we saw with the Dreamers is they were forming coalitions across all of the various groups of undocumented youth, across ethnic groups, across geographic groups. They, when the debate shifts from the U.S. government to state governments, they're able to be very effective at mobilizing across state lines because of that coalition. So that's not a grand coalition of counterpublics. But is at least an expanded counterpublics where multiple counterpublics can work together in a network space that might not have been able a generation ago to found common cause to work to work together. I would point to a, a similar example in in Detroit around uh, with a nonprofit organizations specifically around do, uh, digital activism. That there is a fantastic coalition of of uh, of these nonprofit groups. Some of them are five hundred one three C have official you know tax free status. And some don't. They're just, there's groups that have formed into a, a, a very well-structured coalition. Uh, and what's, what's interesting about that is that, of course, with any kind of institutionalizing of a, of a coalition, it, it also leads to some, um, some dysfunction, you know, some, some slowing down of process. And I wonder you know, to what extent coalitions can effectively form um, outside of institution building uh, and, and can, can networks, I mean, what Henry's drawing attention to is, is, is a possibility of this network actually functioning as a, a or ha being a well-functioning coalition. But I think the propensity is to, um, is to 
form institutions around coalitions to, to have the, the biggest political um, impact, and sometimes that, that backfires. On the subject of counter-publics, uh, yeah, Christopher. Just briefly, um, that, you know, Habermas assumes a center in the society. So uh, we need to realize that probably there's no center anymore. So from the network's perspective, we don't have the center. It's more like an eccentric society with all this differentiation uh, that's happening. So we need to think or move from a, a public sphere to a network sphere, highly differentiated, where there's not a center. And of course, uh, as the counterpublics increasingly become visible, at least the, the ones, uh, you know, the, the ones that they want to become visible. Probably we're going to have a new way of uh, uh, communicating through networks and in this new net network eccentric space. On the subject of counterpublics operating within public spaces, I should simply note that there seems to be rather a lively conversation about lolcats and activism going on on the Twitter feed. <laughs> and in addition, Noel's laptop, which I'm using both as Twitter feed and Timekeeper down here, has received a, an account of its own. <laughs> Quite not my doing, but uh, next question. <laughs> um, yes, my name is David Rosen. Um, I would like to sort of flip this conversation a little bit into a historical context. Um, if we go back before the digital age, say to the late 60s, in Paris the Situationists uh, gave voice to something they called Society of the Spectacle, which helped fuel a movement of civil disobedience which really impacted that society. And that voice also shared, was found here in the States and a lot of social activists who came together in Chicago in 68. And what happened, of course, is that um, a voice was found to articulate a social crisis, whether in Europe or the States, that was di dispersed and was, was not, uh, not recognized as a coherent articulation of, a, of a, the crisis, but also an attempt to address the crisis. So as we, I'm curious because to me the counterpublics that you're articulating or trying to identify really speak to a much longer tradition having nothing to do with or pre-digital pre that articulates the same sets of concerns about disempowerment, the tyranny of a corporate class that rules globally, and to, more importantly, for the United States in which ordinary people's lives are getting immiserated. So the question I'm curious about is what gives voice to this counter-publics that it comes together as a coherent social force, even that can't articulate itself. And how do we, quote unquote, as sort of intellectuals or whatever, um, help understand this voice and perhaps help articulate it? Eric, do you want to try? Well, uh, yeah, maybe. Uh, that's a, it's, it's you know, a very hard question. What gives voice? I'll start with the what gives voice um, to these counterpublics. It's something I, I, um, I struggle with a lot. And, I mean, it seems to me that, that even within our, our networked public sphere that, that we've been talking about, there are, there are frames. And, and those frames can be, um, can be a, a cohesive story that gets told through that, that, um, that networked interaction. So those... Those counterpublics come together, but there's something structuring um, any sort of cohesive message there. And 
Yeah, but but there there is cohesion there there is cohesion that's found at some point, and I think that's what you're what you're getting to, and what I think what the difference is, what the qualitative difference is, is that now the um, the the building blocks of that of that message can come from um, a, a sort of uh, well dis, uh, decentered um, and and uh, disaggregated uh, uh, kind of origins, um, and then come together. But I still there there still needs to be leaders. There, there still needs to be stories that are told about that information. There still needs to be somebody that's transferring that data into something politically powerful. It doesn't just happen that if you say something online, you know, that you're, that, you know, that you're committing or, or, or um, necessarily taking any action that can be politically powerful. Not necessarily. So I would say that to, you know, to some answer for your question... Um, we can't get rid of the idea of, of organizers, of leaders, of experts. Like those, those people still exist. Uh, teachers, mentors, um, and and we just have to. They're just now sort of located differently within within how we would understand the the, the public sphere. I mean, I would question your premises on on two bases. The first is the idea that what we're talking about is primarily digital, and again, that's a problem I have with Malcolm Gladwell's formulation of pitting the civil rights movement in the 1950s versus Twitter activism today is, I think it would be more fair to talk about television act, telephone activism in the 1950s. We know Martin Luther King uses the telephone to organize conversations among freedom writers in the North and black churches in the South and the talk to RFK and, and so forth. But we never reduce that to television, telephone activism. None of the groups that we're looking at are exclusively digital. In fact, the ti- working title of the book we're writing is By Any Medium Necessary, because we see them as sort of working across every available platform in one way or another. So the idea of this is digital, I think, is I would balk at. The second is, I don't think there's a scarcity of voice. Quite the opposite. If there's incoherence now, it's because everyone has access to some communication capacities within these organizations. There's not a centralized message, and that is both the strength and the limitations of something like Occupy, the ability to generate thousands of memes around pepper spray cop over a two-week period of time, all with different frames, all with different metaphors, is a very different problem than trying to turn the cameras around on the streets of Chicago saying the whole world is watching, but only if CBS, NBC, or, or ABC will pay any attention to what the protesters are saying. So we flip the problem. The problem's not a shortage of voices. The problem is finding consensus, solidarity across those voices, uh, which is what's resulting in, not in articulateness, but in coherence in contemporary movements today. Uh, Bill Brooks, uh, independent videographer and editor. A uh, question for Professor Jenkins. You mentioned that after uh, the tragic bombing uh, on... on at the uh, marathon, that the uh, Muslim com- community went silent, and I'm curious, two-part question: Why is that, and what can be done to encourage them to speak up? Thank so you. So we've been talking to the, the mosque uh, where Sangeeta Shrestova, my postdoc, has been doing her research. There's certainly strong urging within the mosque that it's very important for moderate Muslim voices to be heard at the present time, and that there's a desire to speak up. It's hard to know precisely why so many of the youth stopped using social media in the wakes, but most likely a combination of parents expressing concern about exposure, that the surveillance culture anxieties that were already in our research sort of hit critical mass at that point. And I think there's a paralysis 
among the young people to know what's appropriate. You know, any visibility seems risky in the current moment. Any voice that speaks out uh, in the face of people saying we should block all Muslim students from coming to the United States, for example, as several U.S. Senate and House leaders have done so far, is feels like you're at enormous risk. And so we need to put, you know, I think there's some time has to pass. I think there has to be rebuilding. I think it's not a shortage of digital literacy skills. They were very active and very creative before, but it is showing moral support, as I think I'm trying to say in speaking out in the city of Boston about this. I think as many of us can show support for that community during this and be aware that they are feeling deeply intimidated by some of the aftermath of the horrible tragedy here in in Boston. I guess I have one more, at least. Uh, the the counter public is defined by definition against a public, but the public, of course, is is an amorphous and, uh, and and rather tricky term that could refer to the state and to the sphere of political actors, could refer to the economy and the the sphere of employment, capital, and so on, or could re- refer more broadly to spheres of participation. Does it does it matter uh, what public is uh, is is invoked by the the counter public? I mean, uh, sorry, terrible way to frame a, an early evening question as we move towards the drinks portion of uh, of our uh, festivities today. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> trying to press a, li- a little bit more on, on this relationship between counterpublics conceived as spaces of play, counterpublics conceived as spaces of resistance, and wh- what might be relations between, say, the, the kind of political resistance movements that you're interested in, in tracking, that your research is tracking, Cristobal, and, and you, Eric, with the kind of forms of participatory play and, and democracy. What, what, what forms of, of opposition, if, if any, do you find latent within those practices, for instance? Eric? What forms of opposition? Um, well, it's interesting because in, in some ways, simply um, w- simply participating in processes where, um, where, for instance, let's take youth, for example. Um, youth tend to not participate in, any, in, in local processes, for instance, local urban planning processes. Simply by participating in those processes, there are, they are, in, in, in effect... Um, becoming a counterpublic, they're 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 operating in, in opposition to um, to to this public that is just not used to listening to them. And what's interesting in that 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 um, when they participate in the way that they do, when they actually provide input into um, into what's going to happen with a, a twenty million dollar development, for instance, there is a, a a bit of confusion that takes place, which is well. How can we listen to 15-year-olds um, because they they clearly can't be listened to? And yet, um, the 15-year-olds often are the ones who have the most articulate and and let's say uh, playful expressions of, of of what could happen. Um, so I think that's really so simply so 
depending on the context of participation, simply the act of participation is, is in itself um, running counter to, to, the, to, the, to this um, mainstream public. And I would say that one of the things that I've been thinking about, and, and I'm going to do a political thing and kind of not answer your question with the second part, is, um, is uh, this idea of responsibility within the formation of these, of these counterpublics. And, and what, I'm, what I'm interested in is at what is the, uh, I think you, you talked about this minimum, what was the word you used? Minimum, minimum viable counterpublic. Minimum viable counterpublic. And, and, and it got me thinking about what, is the, what does that mean qualitatively? What does that mean in, in terms of if I'm participating in this minimum viable counterpublic, do I have a, the, a, any? Do I have the same level of of responsibility to for my actions or to the community in which I'm representing or advocating for, uh, or is it is it independent of of, of size? So I guess I, I'm just curious to to know um, in, in relation to this is that um, when when we act, when counterpublics form. Um, there's also this element of responsibility that will determine, really, the, the, repub- the, the public that they're responding to. And I wonder if you could say a little bit about that, yeah, that yeah, idea. I think it's, it's a, it's a, uh, the question is coming back to me yeah. on, on, on that concept. I think it's a, it's, a, it's a key question. I mean, key question in the sense of, of course, you have responsibility because minimum viable uh, counterpublics can disappear you know, so there's a responsibility to really act and get out and, and, and basically construct and foster the identity. So there's a responsibility to participate, but also there's the risk, you know, that it's not going to uh, uh, sustain. Uh, because, of course, there's issues around sustainability in these uh, counterpublics. So, uh, and probably depends in which areas uh, uh, we're talking. But there's, of course, a critical issue whether a counterpublic stays as a minimal viable space or continue and develop as an identity, and in my case, as a political party, or as a, uh, I don't know, uh, other form of institutionalized uh, form because in my case, to your previous question, the publics has been the political status quo, whether a dictatorship in Egypt, Tunisia, uh, whether corporate powers in the U.S. or in London uh, or in or in Spain and in Chile has been the whole political the whole political uh, uh, status quo uh, that has been doing quite well, but these new counterpublics started when they were, you know, in high school. And they sustain. They start as a minimal viable counterpublic when they were in high school in 2006, 2008, and 2006. And then, five years later, they were, you know, massive counterpublics, visible, and probably they will become official publics, political parties. One way of thinking about the private as a counterpublic. I mean, the, the phrase minimum counterpublic, minimum viable counterpublic, makes me wonder where you place the, the minimum, right? Um, do, does a single individual constitute a counterpublic? Does, does privacy represent a form of counterpublicness? Can we, can we think of individuals themselves as minimal viable counterpublics? Is it even, is it worth our while to, to do so? Maybe it may lie outside the ambit of, of your work on political resistance movements, but it uh, seems perhaps worth, uh, worth throwing in along with lolcats and uh, <laughs> questions of resistance, belonging, alternative identity, 
thank you all for coming. Thank you again to our speakers, Cristobal, Henry, Maria, and Eric. Thanks so much. Thank you.